Do you know who's having a bad day? Alec Baldwin. The search warrant affidavits have been released in the Brian Koberger matter. Is it evidence of guilt or just a reasonable explanation? Or as Sigmund Freud once said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Alec Murdoch's attorneys say the prosecution's blood evidence should not come into evidence. Lori Vallow and Chad DeBell have a motions hearing today. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like and share if you do. Leave me a comment below and hit that little bell so you receive notifications of when we go live or put up new content. And remember, you can always listen to us anytime on your favorite podcasting app. Now, let's support the people that support Crime Talk before we open the docket. Like many Americans, we got a dog during the pandemic. My quarantine dog, Miss Winnie the Bulldog. Now, Miss Winnie has grown accustomed to being around us all the time. When we were leaving the house, Winnie would have extreme anxiety, so we decided to look for natural products to help with her anxiety. We looked for the highest quality CBD treats, and we were not satisfied, and neither was Winnie. So we created a high quality CBD product that absorbs faster and provides the required results faster. Baked in Colorado CBD treats and beverage enhancers are made with nanotechnology. The nanotechnology makes the CBD extraction more pure, also allows for Baked in Colorado products to work faster. Baked in Colorado products can help reduce your pet's anxiety, ease joint pain, and help with your dog's skin problems. Go to our online store and see what Baked in Colorado product is best for your dog. When you order at bakedincolorado.com, enter code WINNIE and receive 15% off your first order. We have a 30-day money-back guarantee. If your dog does not experience the desired results in 30 days, return the product and we will refund your money. No questions asked. Let's go ahead and open the record for January 19th of 2023 and let's talk about the first matter on the docket. Do you know who's having a bad day? Alec Baldwin. Why is Alec Baldwin having a bad day? Well, guess what? The New Mexico prosecutors have charged Alec Baldwin for the 2021 fatal shooting of cinematographer Hala Hutchins on the set of Rust. Now, Baldwin shot the bullet that killed Hutchins, and he and the movie's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, each will be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Now, the Rust assistant director, David Holes has already signed a plea agreement, apparently, for the charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon, resulting in a suspended sentence, which basically means we're going to put you on probation. But if you fail probation, we're going to impose a, a sentence uh, for you down the road. And so this is a six-month suspended sentence with probation. Somebody's already cut a deal. And that news comes from the district attorney themselves. Now, the DA's office had been waiting to review evidence from the FBI investigation since October of 2021 after the shooting took place. Now, once the office received the evidence from the FBI, the DA announced that she would intend to pursue charges and actually uh, filed a $635,000 request for emergency funding to hire a specialized team 
including a new prosecutor, investigator, and a spokesperson to handle everything that's going to come with the case. Now, the DA received about half of the requested funds, so I guess you get half the justice, apparently. No, they'll always find money for justice. They'll find it. Anyway, for those who are not familiar, Helena Hutchins was shot and killed October 21st, 2021, during a scene where Baldwin uses a gun that was uh, filled with live bullet rounds instead of dummies, which is against the Hollywood film standards. Joel Souza, the movie's director, uh, was injured by the bullet, uh, but he fortunately recovered. Now, David Hall, the movie's assistant director, admitted less than a week after the shooting that he had not properly checked the gun for safety before handing it to the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who would pass it along to Baldwin for the scene. Now, months later, in December of 2021, Baldwin said that he didn't pull the trigger. And the FBI forensic report uh, said that despite Baldwin's denial, the gun could not have gone off without the pull of the trigger. The family of Helena Hutchinson's ultimately sued Baldwin and the film producers back in February of 2022 for wrongful death. The lawsuit was settled in October of 2022, and the movie resumed filming with Matt Hutchins, the widower of Helena, now serving as executive producer. So what is manslaughter and what is involuntary manslaughter in New Mexico where this case will be tried? Well, manslaughter is the unlawful killing of a human being without malice. Voluntary manslaughter consists of manslaughter committed upon a sudden quarrel or in the heat of passion. Whoever commits voluntary manslaughter is guilty of a third degree felony resulting in the death of a human being. Here's the important one. Involuntary manslaughter consists of manslaughter committed in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to felony or in the commission of a lawful act which might produce death in an unlawful manner or without due caution and circumspection. Whoever commits involuntary manslaughter is guilty of a fourth degree felony. What's that is a fancy way of saying? It's a fancy way of saying in the statute, this was involuntary manslaughter on a criminally negligent standard. That's what that really means. Now, it is a fourth degree felony. What does that mean in New Mexico? It's the least serious of the felonies, but obviously it's a felony, which is quite severe because you could be sentenced to prison. Uh, you certainly cannot possess firearms after this. Uh, while you're on probation or some sort of confinement, you have collateral consequences like you can't possess a firearm and it can, can affect your ability to obtain loans, to be able to obtain employment, uh, professional licenses, all those types of things that come with a felony conviction. So the crimes in this degree uh, may include uh, property damage, shoplifting, and items up to worth $2,500, including manslaughter, aggravated assaults, identity thefts, and possessions of controlled substances. The penalties of the fourth degree felony in New Mexico include up to 18 months in prison and a fine of $5,000. So what that means is since there's two counts for two victims, each could carry a maximum penalty of up to 18 months in prison. They could be served concurrent, run at the same time, or consecutive one after the other. Do we really think uh, Alec Baldwin is going to prison? N no. What surprises me about this? This charges don't surprise me at all. If you go back and look at our previous videos when all this went down, I said it'll be some sort of criminally negligent uh, based charge. And in fact, they have done that. Criminal negligence. Now, I got a real problem with 
criminal negligence in the criminal realm, all right? It's a civil standard, negligence. It's reasonable foreseeability. Um, should that really be criminal? Most criminal statutes um, that the government is required to prove a, a mental state, a knowing mental state, that someone knew what they were doing, they were aware of their conduct, and they were practically certain to cause the intended result. Negligence is a reasonable man standard. Would a reasonable person believe that there is a risk and it's reasonably foreseeable and that the person failed to act according to those risks? You know, if you rear end somebody in a car, you're more than likely negligent. Should it also be criminal? Well, it usually is. It's called reckless driving. But once again, it's a much higher uh, mental state that somebody has to uh, have the government prove in there. So that's that's one thing with criminal negligence. The other thing that surprised me is why did it take over a year? The DA said that she was waiting for the FBI analysis of the firearm. That was concluded in October. Three months to decide after you received that information and the FBI said the firearm was functioning. Oh my gosh, you could have just watched Crime Talk. We did a video where I brought in a very similar firearm, an actual, an actual antique firearm, and I clearly demonstrated that you cannot fire a round from that weapon unless somebody pulls the trigger. Impossible. So when Alec Baldwin says that that's what happened, he's wrong. Hey, if that's what gets him through the day, I guess he can do that. But the reality of it is uh, that firearm did not just go off. It didn't happen there, Alec. So what will ultimately happen here? Well, will it be a favorable plea disposition? The prosecutors already made a favorable plea disposition to one person, a suspended sentence. It's a slap on the wrist, maybe a misdemeanor. I can't imagine Helena Hutchinson's family is uh, upset to the point. They've settled the case. Obviously, their loved one is gone. But do they really want Alec Baldwin to go to prison? I guess what that really comes down to is, is what does Alec Baldwin want? What does the armor in this case want to do? My guess is it will result in some sort of plea disposition. I'd be very surprised. I'd be very, very surprised if this went all the way to trial. Next, let's talk about the unsealed search warrants. And first, you have to ask the question, are the items that were recovered from the search of Brian Koberger's home, are they good or are they bad? Or as in the words of Sigmund Freud, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, which means you can't really read that much into it. And sometimes it's just, it is what it is. So let's take a look at exactly what took place. Now remember, this is a search warrant from the state of Washington, County of Whitman. Obviously the homicides took place in Idaho, but his property was located in Washington state. So they had to go to Washington state court judge and get an affidavit. So what we have been able to find out is there is a motion in order to unseal the warrant return. And this was filed by the um, state of Washington through the Whitman County prosecuting attorney and that they moved for an order to unseal the return of the search warrant, which was the search warrant 12-29-2022A. The uh, motion states that these warrants were issued and served in Washington state because a suspect in crimes resided and worked here during the time of the murders. These warrants and associated applications were sealed due to the sensitive nature of the investigation at that time. Since then, an extensive probable cause affidavit has been unsealed in Latak County, Idaho, 
which has alleviated the need for the ceiling of the return of service here in Washington, referring to the state of Washington state. Now, then we have the motion order for the original search warrant and the search warrant application to remain sealed, but a redacted version be provided to the public for the public release. Now, the motion basically states that the state of Washington through their constitution recognizes that victims of crimes have rights and states that effective law enforcement depends on the cooperation from the victims of crime and that the Washington state legislature has recognized that there is a severe detrimental impact on crime, survivors of crimes, and witnesses of crimes, and yet there is the civic and moral duty of victims, survivors of victims, and witnesses of crimes to fully and voluntarily cooperate with law enforcement and prosecutorial agencies. In a criminal proceeding, the law requires that a reasonable effort is made to ensure that victims, survivors of victims, and witnesses of crimes have the right to receive protection from harm and threats of harm arising out of cooperation with law enforcement and prosecution efforts. The Washington courts have long acknowledged that a victim's initials can be substituted for their name. The basis for this motion is that there are two surviving victim witnesses of a now notorious and much publicized uh, murder burglary in Moscow, Idaho, whose full names are listed in this search warrant and the search warrant application. These warrants were issued and served in Washington state because a suspect in this crime resided and worked here during the time of the homicides. These warrants and associate applications were sealed due to the sensitive nature of the investigation at the time. Since then, like I said, the uh, affidavit has been released and it doesn't leave much to the imagination as to what uh, is being stated. In fact, in the released affidavit for the arrest warrant, Brian Koberger, all of the uh, witnesses' uh, names were uh, listed as well. Needless to say, they filed that uh, so that the uh, uh, surviving witnesses in this case uh, can have, instead of their names, put in the uh, release to the rest of the world, they will simply be identified by their initials. Now, let's talk about the search warrant. So one thing I want to explain about search warrants is that once the court grants the search warrant and they find that there's a probable cause to go search a place, which means the police have a pretty good idea that they know what they're looking for and they have to know exactly where they're looking for these particular items. Otherwise, the search warrants can be challenged as a violation of the Fourth Amendment and that they can be considered a general warrant, which is strictly prohibited by the Fourth Amendment. So you have to be very particular as to what you're looking for. So as we go through this, I'll kind of indicate whether I think there's going to be a challenge. My gut feeling is there's always going to be a challenge in a homicide case that there was not um, probable cause within the four corners of this particular affidavit to go and find exactly what they're looking for. And some of the language, it's close. It's a close call, probably won't be thrown out, but um, we'll have to see. And it has to be something of evidentiary value as well. So the area to be searched within 10 days uh, from the date that the search warrant was signed was the uh, residence of Mr. Koberger, which was 1630 North East Valley Road, apartment G201 there in Pullman, uh, Washington. They give a general description saying this is a three-story multiple occupancy apartment building in Pullman, Washington, which is tan and white in color. Apartment G201 is located on the northeast corner of the second story of the building. The door to G201 is located on the east side of the secondary landing and is designated by the numbers 201. You may think, why are they doing this? 
it must be specific. The police have to identify. They can't just say, hey, we're going to go search this uh, general apartment complex at 1630 Northeast Valley Road. They have to be specific. And they're authorized to seize, if located, evidence of the above listed crimes, including blood or other bodily fluid or human tissue or skin cells or items with blood or other bodily fluid or human tissue or skin cells on the items. So basically, they received a search warrant to go look, obviously, for blood or blood-like substances. Because remember, it's not really blood until it's been tested and determined to be blood. It may look like blood, but until we have a scientific expert say it, it appears to be a blood-like substance. Remember that. And then also basically going in and talking about human skin cells, uh, we're talking about DNA. They were also authorized to look for knives, sheaths, and other sharp tools, including any daggers, dirk, or sword, and any written indicia of ownership of same, including sales receipt. Any images, whether digital or on paper, or any other format, which shows Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zaina Cronodal, and Madison Mogan, and then the initials of the surviving victims, at or the house of 1122 King Road, Moscow, Idaho, and the surrounding neighborhood. Clothing, including but not limited to dark shirts, dark pants, masks, shoes with diamond pattern sole. Trace evidence, including DNA from blood or skin cells or other sources, footprints, fingerprints, hair, whether human or animal slash dog. Data compilations, whether digital, electronic, or on paper or other format showing an interest in or planning of murder, violent assault, stabbing, and or cutting of people, and data compilations showing the details of the 1122 King Road House and uh, any other information relating to all of the victims, including data compilations showing the locations of Brian Koberger or the cell phone with number 509-592, and we'll leave out the remaining stuff, on November 13th, 2022, including Wi-Fi logs and data or metadata associated with photos, social media posts, or applications on cell phones or computers. As example, but not intended to be an exclusive list of data compilations being sought, ledgers, papers, lists, books, notes, letters, calendars, address books, contacts, diaries, uh, tapes, photographs, videos, emails, text messages, social media posts, and metadata associated therewith. This, ladies and gentlemen, probably a little overly broad uh, because data compilations, whether digital, electronic, or on paper, if you see something, a computer, a phone, you have to go get a separate warrant uh, for that. Uh, I don't like the language there. Um, electronic digital devices or digital storage devices, which may contain any of the above data compilations, including cell phones, computers, towers, laptops, tablets, external hard drives, CDs, DVDs, thumb drives, or other data storage devices. This includes any devices which may contain evidence of other accounts associated with this device, including email address, social media accounts, messaging apps, accounts, and other accounts that may be accessed through the digital device that will aid in determining the possessor's user of the device. Photographs, images, videos, documents, and related data created, accessed, read, modified, received, stored, sent, moved, deleted, or otherwise manipulated between the above dates. Evidence of the use of the device to conduct 
internet searches related to a review of other murders or violent assaults, stabbings, and or cuttings of people, as well as how to avoid detection after the commission of such crime. Details of the 1122 King Road house, its location, neighborhood, or other information about the victims. Information that can be used to calculate the position of the device between the above dates, including location data, GPS data, GPS coordinates for routes, destination queries before the above listed data, app data, or usage information and related uh, information. Evidence of the identity of persons in possession of the device or any items that items of evidentiary value located pursuant to this warrant were created, modified, or accessed or otherwise manipulated. Such evidence may be found in digital communications, photos and videos associated, metadata, IP logs, documents, social media activity, and similar data. Also, passwords, phrases, codes, patterns, fingerprints, and or usernames to operate any such device. Indicia of residence in or ownership of possession of the premises and any of the above items included mail, receipts, identification bills, renter agreements, license documents, or other personal property whose ownership possessors may be readily determined. A lot of those last two paragraphs seem very overly broad. If I was Mr. Koberger's attorney, I would be attacking the um, four corners of the warrant that you don't get to just go in and rummage around. Um, Like I said, you have to be specific. You can't say, we want to go search somebody's phone like this one and say, we're going to, we're going to uh, go into it. We need the password. We're going to get into it and we're going to take a look around. And we know what we're going to see when we find it. You have to be specific. The United States Supreme Court has said so much. If you know you're looking for an Instagram account, then you can go to Instagram. You also can go get a search warrant from Instagram to do that. But if you go into the phone to get the Instagram information and you paint it illegally, then you can't say, oh, well, we got it from Instagram. We can't use it. No. So it gets into a bunch of issues and um, we're going to have to wait and see. We're going to have to wait and see whether uh, first the defense will, and I would suggest that they would challenge uh, these warrants. So the application for a search warrant in Washington state is basically a complete regurgitation, a copying of the arrest affidavit that was uh, sent to the courts in Idaho uh, when the uh, arrest warrant was, was issued. Needless to say, the court granted the affidavit for the search warrant based upon that information. So the application for the search warrant of Mr. Koberger's residence in Washington, the affidavit is literally um, verbatim for the information that was in the affidavit for the arrest warrant. And then every time a search warrant is executed, you need to leave an inventory copy of what was uh, left as well as a copy of the search warrant at the residence. Then the return has to be sent back to the court saying, these are the items that we have recovered. What were the items that were recovered? First, one nitrate type black glove, one Walmart receipt with one Dickies tag, two Marshall's receipts, dust container from Bissell Power Force vacuum, eight possible hair strands, one fire TV stick with cord and plug, one possible hair strand, one possible hair, another possible hair, another possible hair, another possible hair strand, a computer tower, 
a collection of dark red spots collected without testing. Got to be, like I said, it's not blood until somebody says it's blood. Two cuttings from uncased pillow of reddish brown stain, larger stain tested. Two top and bottom of mattress covers packaged separately, both labeled C, multiple stains, one tested. So take a look at that list. Um, one nitrate type black glove. I don't know. Like I said, is that something of evidentiary value that goes to prove or disprove something in this case? Or is it something that, well, he had laying around. He needed a, uh, had a project at school. Who knows? Uh, the Dickies tag. Okay. Was it dark clothing? Same thing with the Marshall receipts. Dark clothing. A dust container from a Bissell Power Force vacuum. Okay. I guess we'll have to wait and see what they collect in there. Eight possible hair strands. Once again, are they his hair strands? Are they the neighbors? Who knows? Are they his parents? We won't know until the actual testing comes back. A fire stick. Okay. A possible animal hair strand. You know, is this a dog that he uh, petted at the park when he was uh, taking a walk? Or was it a hair strand from a dog that matches the dog that was found at the residence of the homicides? We don't know. Once again, possible hair strands, possible hair strands. One collection of dark red spot collected without testing. Okay, is this dark spot? What is it? Where was it found? Uh, was it a blood spot of his maybe in the sink? You know, we, has, we know he has a tendency to cut himself shaving, right? Uh, you just don't know. Two cuttings from an uncased pillow of reddish slash brown stain. Okay, is this something bad? Or did he have a bloody nose and it stained the pillow? Like I said, is this something bad? Or is this sometimes a cigar is just a cigar? We're going to have to wait and see. Frankly, I don't think it's anything earth shattering. No knife was found. No receipt for a knife was found. The police are going to have to go get separate warrants to look into any phones and any computers. I guess they didn't take any phones, but any of the, uh, the computer tower that was taken, that may lead to more information. But once again, you don't get to just go look around. You have to know what you are actually looking for. So let me know. Do you think there's something of evidentiary value or it can be completely explained away? Frankly, if somebody was, if I was representing him, I'd say, so what? Unless any of those possible hairs come from the victims, who cares? Unless there's DNA from the victims there, who cares? I don't see it of, of any great value at this point. We obviously have to wait and see. All right, next on the docket, Alec Murdoch. Oh, we're coming up on his trial, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking next week, and we're talking about basically motions in limine, motions that to, where evidentiary items should not come in. And in this particular case, the defense is going after the prosecution and their blood evidence rather harsh. In regards to the blood spatter, in regards to testing done guy by a guy named Tom Bevel. He's a principal at uh, Bevel, Garner and Associates. Now out of full disclosure, I can tell you, we hired an expert that was kind of uh, referred by this particular organization once, didn't use them in trial, uh, but more as a consulting basis. So. I will leave it at that, full and fair disclosure uh, that we have used them in the past on one case. I think maybe consulted on another, but 
But I can also say I never worked with Mr. Bevel uh, on this particular matter. So what is it that the defense is asking for? Well, they're asking for sanctions. And what do they want to be sanctioned? Well, the blood evidence, the testimony from their expert witness, and anything related to any testing that he did, and, oh, attorney's fees, which rarely happens, at least in any jurisdiction that I've ever seen in a criminal case. But basically what they are alleging, let me just give you a quick little little taste here of what they're saying. On June 7th of 2021, Alec Murdoch's wife, Maggie, and son Paul were brutally murdered near the dog kennels at a family home on Mosul Road in Calton County. As Mr. Murdoch has noted in previous motions, the state immediately decided Alec Murdoch was guilty before anyone collected, investigated, or reviewed any evidence and unable to build a solid case against Mr. Murdoch to present in court, instead engaged in a campaign of selective and deceptive leaks to news media to convince the public that Murdoch is guilty before he is tried. Perhaps the most extraordinary leak occurred in April of 2022 when the state told Fitz News that a, quote, shirt worn by Alex Murdoch on the night his wife and son were murdered was found to have a significant amount of high-velocity impact spatter on it from at least one of their bodies, end quote, and that the presence of this forensic evidence on his clothing could only have come from one thing. The spatter indicates that Murdoch was physically close to one or more of his family members when they were shot. And then they cite the article. The only possible motive for this leak was to convince the public that Mr. Murdoch was guilty of the murders before trial, even before he was formally charged. This leak was an extrajudicial statement made on behalf of the state with the deliberate intention to prejudice the present judicial proceedings. And it was also a lie, according to the filings here. The leaked information was the purported opinion of Tom Bevel of Bevel, Gardner & Associates, and they're in Oklahoma. Mr. Bevel is a retired Oklahoma City police officer with no credentials in any scientific discipline. On the night of the murders, South Carolina law enforcement, also known as SLED, collected the white cotton t-shirt Mr. Murdoch was wearing when he discovered Maggie and Paul's bodies. SLED retained Mr. Bevel to opine that the t-shirt is stained with a high-velocity blood spatter that could only come from being in proximity within them at the time of the murders. It did so even though the state knew on August 10th of 2021, almost six weeks before first reaching out to Mr. Bevel on September 21st, that confirmatory blood test results were definitively negative for human blood in all areas of the shirt where purported spatter is present. SLED never told Mr. Bevel that the shirt definitively tested negative for human blood before Mr. Bevel produced his report. In fact, the state never told him until after defense counsel mailed a copy of the report directly to Mr. Bevel as an attachment to a copy of a public court filing. However, even without knowing the shirt tested negative for human blood, Mr. Bevel's initial report correctly determined that there was no high-velocity blood spatter on the shirt. It also stated that the spatter was unlikely to be on the shooter at all. Only after badgering and a personal visit from SLED officials did Mr. Bevel change his report, both to say that it turns out abundant spatter is on the t-shirt after all, and that spatter likely would be on the person who shot Paul, 
Although Paul's DNA is not found on the areas of the shirt, Mr. Bevel now says have spatter. In reaching this opposite conclusion, Mr. Bevel cited no new evidence except an in-person examination of the T-shirt after it was destroyed for purposes of forensic testing by the unnecessary application of an oxidizing chemical stain and after Mr. Bevel told the state it had no evidentiary value to him. The inspection was just an excuse to pay Mr. Bevel a visit by having senior sled agents act as couriers for the remnants of the T-shirt. Mr. Bevel admits his opinion was not changed by the inspection. Instead, he claims his opinion changed when he realized he could use a Photoshop to alter the pre-destruction photographs of the T-shirt. All this came to light because SLED disclosed a copy of Mr. Bevel's first report by mistake and because Mr. Murdoch's counsel requested a microscopic examination of the T-shirt, forcing the state to admit that it had been destroyed. Based on the destruction of the T-shirt and evident bad faith conduct surrounding this spatter analysis, Mr. Murdoch, Mr. Murdoch moved to exclude it under State B, under State v. Cheeseboro and asked for an evidentiary hearing. Mr. Mr. Murdoch also moved to compel production of Mr. Bevel's case file, including communications, photographs, and other documents given to or received from by SLED. Court granted the motion to compel orally on December 9th and later on December 19th. And then for some 59 more pages, the defense goes through painstaking detail of the timeline of the blood splatter determination or not uh, that goes on. I literally could do an entire uh, multi-hour podcast on this, and maybe we will. So let's just cut to the chase. What does Mr. Murdoch's attorneys want, and do we think he's actually going to get it? Well, I don't know if he's actually going to get it, but it is certainly great cross-examination for the defense to go after the testing procedures uh, that were allegedly done, not done uh, in this particular case. So we will have to see exactly what they want. So what does the defense want in this particular case? Well, they want Mr. Bevel's testimony excluded uh, from the trial. Obviously, that's a big piece of uh, evidence for the uh, prosecution in this particular case although it looks like it could be a little shaky. Uh, they want the exclusion of Mr. Bevel uh, from the case in its entirety and no evidence of any blood splatter testimony derived from Mr. Bevel is also warranted. Now, we didn't go through all of the timeline in this particular case, but I think we should in a later episode because this is interesting and this is what lawyers do. They go through and look at everything, assume nothing. I used to have that on a big board, assume nothing. If they say, the prosecution says, this is it, don't assume that that's the case. Consult an expert. Look at the data yourself if you can understand it. If not, get an expert. And that's what they're doing. And they're saying this timeline doesn't add up. And I think the most interesting is the fact that SLED organization, the South Carolina Law Enforcement uh, Department there, already knew that there wasn't blood splatter and they went and they went shopping for 
an expert. Uh, I've only seen that really a couple times when the prosecution has their own witnesses like a coroner or something and the coroner won't give them the result. So they go shop the result um, for somebody that usually has some sort of uh, unique perspective on a case. So I'm telling you, this case is going to be good. It's got good lawyers on both sides. This is a knockdown drag out. But hey, you know, we know that Alex Murdoch's um, retirement fund was able to pay his attorneys $600,000. They are certainly going to use all of it. So we will have to wait and see. Uh, But trial starts soon. This is going to be good. Maybe I just need to go to South Carolina. I'm telling you, this this could be really good. Next on the docket, there's a hearing today for Lori Vallow. What are they talking about? They're talking about all of the motions filed by the defense saying don't uh, go along with the death penalty. It's unconstitutional. And Judge be bold, strike down uh, the constitutionality of the death penalty in Idaho. Don't see Judge Boyce doing that. The big issue of the day will be, will there be a continuance of the trial? Remember, Chad DeBell's attorney, Mr. Pryor, says he just can't be possibly prepared in any way. The prosecution said, what have you been doing for the last two and a half years? Which is kind of what the court said too. So we're going to have to wait and see. I somehow don't think the court's going to grant the continuance, but... Like I said, we'll have to wait and see. Finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Julie Ann Marsh. She's 56 years old, and uh, she took a seat at um, an outside bar and restaurant at about 7 p.m. on a Friday night at a restaurant called the Harvest Restaurant. But the seat had been claimed by another couple, according to an arrest report. And um, apparently the uh, couple confronted Miss Marsh when they returned from the restroom. Everybody knows you don't go to the restroom as a couple. You one at a time, so you don't lose your seat, right? Anyway, so when the couple returned, the man informed Miss Marsh that she was in uh, his chair. Of course, prompting a verbal altercation, Miss Marsh, Miss Marsh announced that she was not getting up from the chair. Miss Marsh began fighting with the man and the female's date over the chair. The man was pushed during the altercation. Yes, that's a battery, an offensive touching. Well, and the man signed an intent to prosecute for him. When the police arrived, the female companion was not as cooperated with the police because, you know, maybe they realized they were a little at fault themselves. And guess what? Miss Marsh was arrested on the charge of battery. She was booked into the detention center and released after posting a $500 bond. Ladies and gentlemen, I know this is our done criminal of the day. And I say oftentimes, let it go. And, you know, but this is the kind of conduct that keeps everyone employed in the criminal justice system. The police, the detention facility, the courts, prosecutors, attorneys. It's called human nature. People just react. They do stupid things. They overreact over a chair. Maybe the couple could have handled it differently. Maybe Miss Marsh could have said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that you all were here. I thought you had left. I'm sorry. Thank you. But no, instead, she got an arrest that will be on her record. Um, She had to post a bond, have to go to court, possibly get an attorney, probably not going to go do any more jail time. But let's face it, she's probably going to get some useful public service. It's just ridiculous. But best of all, what did Miss Marsh get? That's right. She's our dumb criminal of the day. Maybe the other couple should have been awarded and charged as well, but they didn't put any offensive touching, any touching on Miss Marsh. And so Miss Marsh, you crossed the line. You're the dumb criminal of the day. Congratulations. I know it was the long show today. 
Hope you enjoyed it. Have a wonderful day, not just a good day, and we'll see you next time on Crime Talk.